Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Good evening everybody, welcome to this new episode from the Stargate Archives. Once again, I have a guest who is going to pick one of their favourite episodes from the franchise. By franchise, I mean the three live-action series. I have definitely underlined the fact that I'm not going to be talking about Stargate Infinity in any shape or form. So, this week, I'm joined by Thomas. Pretty sure if you've been a long-time listener of the Gatecast, you have heard him on the show before. Yes, hello. How are you, Thomas? I'm doing well, thank you, Mike. And yourself? Not too bad. Good, good. What episode have you picked? Let's do Trinity from Atlantis. Ah, Trinity. The one with the big boom. Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Trinity is Season 2, Episode 6 of Stargate Atlantis, written by Damien Kindler and directed by Martin Wood. Premiered in America, August 19th, 2005, and we got it on November the 23rd of the same year. I was surprised it was a second season show. When you mentioned uh, Trinity... Well, you mentioned the episode. I knew what the name was, but I thought, what season was that? Feels like a late season episode. Yeah, it does. It feels like something season three or even four. It falls up on the uh, first season episode with the uh, weapons platform. It kind of is a natural bridge, and they're, of course, still looking for power. So it makes sense, but it definitely has a feel of something that should be later on. Yeah. Right, but we won't, we won't, uh, we won't waste too much time. We'll jump straight in. The episode opens up with a nice CGI effect as the uh, jumper exits a space gate and goes into orbit around a planet called Duranda. The usual team is there. Ronan has changed places with Ford at this stage. Mm -hmm. Do hear McKay lecturing him about not eating a big breakfast. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) From experience, the voice of experience, Mm -hmm. Rodney McKay. They do have a very awkward moment where you see Ronan looking off into the distance and then we see the huge debris field and you think well why is Ronan the first person who's seeing this it just seems unreasonable that he's sitting in the back and he sees it first yeah you would have thought that the sensors on the puddle jumper would have detected all the large debris around the planet yeah that's something that doesn't really creep up on you mm-hmm. but they play it as you know a bit of a it's, it's drama it's television make-believe, so I suppose you've got to give it to him, even though it really doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I mean, he's got to have his moment say, hey, look. Yeah, he wants lines. (laughs) He's not going to be a tilk who spends the first two seasons just half a dozen words per episode. And only whenever it's something that he intimately would know. The jumper descends into the atmosphere and flies over a city that has been totally decimated. We are talking thousand times Hiroshima. As far as the eye can see, buildings are totally flattened. You've got the odd structure standing up. Something serious has happened on this world. Oh, yes, most definitely. Stone architecture everywhere. And then they spot, oh, there's not one destroyed. Yep, they pick up an energy source. They locate it in a building that is relatively intact. There is some sort of structure on its roof. Well, it does look like a weapon, to be honest. And it doesn't match any of the surrounding architecture as it's metal and they're stone. Yep. Right, you jump to the title sequence, you return, they're inside the building, identify it as an ancient outpost. I do like the, the the metal ladders that descend down, I thought the ancients would have come up with something a little more advanced. Type of levitating platform or something? Something like that, anything like or, that. More Star Trek-like in the engine room? Yes, but I suppose you could you could argue the fact that if they were next to the back walls or around the edges of the of the room itself, you know, it just seems that the ancients, it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it doesn't fit. Well, they could have done a staircase like they have in the back of the uh, gate control room. Yeah, a staircase that goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, about that time they start wandering around, they find a few dead bodies here, dead bodies there, and ask the question, well, what happened? They certainly look like they've been there a while. Although they still have got some clothing on the bodies. But if it's for a sealed room, there wouldn't be a huge amount of moisture available. Yeah, definitely mummify them a little bit. Yeah. Power gets turned on. 
obviously McKay. He is a genius after all. <laughs> yeah. Surprised this place had backup power generators that were still working. Well, give it to the ancients. They did do some things very well. They did. Emergency lighting, backup power systems, top notch. Meanwhile, back on Atlantis, we have Elizabeth Weir getting uh, some of the updates. They've identified it's a ground-based version of the satellite weapon, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Going to be useful to have. Although, you always get this... This isn't the first time we've seen it on Stargate. Planetary defense, a fixed location on the surface of a planet. Your weapons firing range, firing... Firing arc. Very, very limited. It is, and that's one thing I had to question when watching this episode, especially with some of the things that come up later. How are you going to destroy things on the opposite side of the planet? Are you banking on gravity arcing your shot, or, or what exactly? Yeah, especially since you don't have to rely on the Stargate. You can, you can jump into the system anywhere. In fact, the first mm -hmm. time you come under heavy fire and you realize you are in trouble, flank speed, 90 degree tangent, you try to get out of the weapons arc as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And then go around the backside of the planet, drop a few darts down, come in low, hyperspeed, ram the damn thing if you have to. <laughs> Job yeah. done. Or just throw a hail of asteroids at the planet, which is something oh, yeah. the Wraith had done before. Yeah, and a few other people. They try convincing Weir, hey, let's go back and do the research. He finally accepts the proposition, and John and McKay run off to do that. Like a couple of schoolboys. <laughs> McKay especially. Yeah. He's found, a, he's found a really nice toy to play with. And then I do believe at that point, Taylor says she's going off-world to do stuff for her people. Yep, she's done the traveling outfit, diplomacy outfit, trading outfit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Ronan is hanging around. Obviously, he's he's still feeling a bit out of place. He's used to being on, on the road, traveling from planet to planet. Never any downtime. Yeah, he, the higher technology, the more restrictive society of Atlantis isn't really his thing. So going on an off-world mission with Taylor probably suits him a lot better. Mm-hmm. They go into a planet to do a deal for some flaxseed in return for some Thosian labor. Yeah, I believe it was some some resistance strain or something that they needed for the mainland. It does indicate how beat down the, the surviving Athosians are when all they've got really is the, the muscles and the backs to actually trade. They need that start, and even Atlantis isn't in a position to provide them with everything they need. Yeah, but I mean that does happen over time with the you know any plant that's been wiped out or been, any people that have been forced out of their homes. They do have basically just themselves to offer. Yeah. Right. We uh, go over to the outpost in the chamber. They figure out that this is a power source. This is an energy generating system. They've got a huge weapon on the roof that feeds. Whatever the technology that they built there feeds the gun. Shepard, cool. Then we we get Zelenka and McKay going technobabble crazy, not expecting John to understand it, which he does up to a point. <laughs> yeah. But then he gets a glazed look on his face. <laughs> yeah, whenever McKay first goes on about what well, you would understand it, he, he explains exactly what it does, and then he goes further and he's like, yeah, we'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got the basics. I'm, I'm with you. Commander doesn't need to know all the details, he just needs a vague outline of what the personnel below him are up to. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, there's a great big space gun and the power system to feed it, and they're going to try to get it to work. Of course. We always want more weapons. Move to the planet, Belkin. This is where Taylor's going to be doing some negotiating. Whoever she's negotiating with is playing hardball, not willing to do a deal demanding more. She's saying that she'll be giving the Athosian people into uh, indentured servitude. So what? What is? what exactly is he asking for? <laughs> I kind of wish we had seen the end of the actual negotiations, not the interrupted negotiations that we had. I think it may have given a little more credence to how Taylor really is the leader of her people and how she has been leading them for several years now. Yeah, the odds are that it had come down to maybe committed a, a hundred of eight people for a season's work on half a dozen farms on Belkin in return for the flaxseed and then the following season her people went back to actually harvest what the other people had planted mm -hmm. unfortunately Ronan being Ronan 
I don't know if he's got an issue with women being in command, but obviously he felt the need to intervene. Yeah. Taylor did not appreciate it once. Not at all. I was fully expecting for when they came out the door and she dropped the pack just to straight up deck him. Yeah. Probably could do it. She might have to take a jump, but the chances (laughs) are she'd connect. Oh, she would bounce off that little wall and just straight up in the face deck him. With all the good intentions, and Ronan realised he'd he'd overstep. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice, though, the character Mathis. You'll recognise Christopher Guth there from Eureka. Mm-hmm. Always nice to see him. He also mentions that when he hears that Ronan is from the last survivor of Satida, he uh, points out that, no, he's not. There's a Satidan in the village. Yep, and we watch Teal walk off, none the wiser at this moment. Oh, sorry, Ronan. <laughs> I caught myself doing that all this morning. It's like, wait, it's Teal. No, it's Ronan. <laughs> They fit a very similar role. They do indeed, yeah. Right, back on Atlantis, we're getting a report. Project Arcturus, pretty much the ultimate power source, makes ZPMs look like... Alkaline batteries, I believe they said. And a ZPM is an incredible device in itself. Step up in power generation must be immense. Yeah, if saying then, yeah, definitely, because we have, obviously, in current technology, things that are much better than alkaline batteries, and we have nuclear power plants, so... Power generation on this sort of scale could feed a planet very easily. It wouldn't really work on ships, it wouldn't really work on anything portable, but you've got every planet's got something like this, feeding the huge power grid. You wouldn't need anything else. I mean, that would supply probably more power than you would ever need. It is so tempting. You can understand why everybody sees this as, a, as an opportunity and why, obviously, the ancients were committing resources to this project while they're in the middle of a, an out-and-out war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe at this point they bring up that would have thought that the ancients would have tackled this first before doing ZPM. And I believe Rodney says, well, they may have, but glancing over the subject of why would they have ditched it in the first place. Yeah. But of course, like you say, a lot, lot of the things they learned, maybe from the failures of just trying to work out this technology before they ever got to building it, paved the mm-hmm. way for ZPMs. Oh, yeah. I mean, any failed experiment leads to advancements from there on. I mean, it's there is no such thing as a true failure. That's one of the annoying things whenever blue sky research or maybe NASA or the European Space Agency come up with a, a proposal for a system. It's going to cost, you know, maybe a billion, billion dollars yeah. or a billion euros. And people say, well, what's it going to bring us? And you say, well, the space race brought us technologies that were you don't even consider came from the space race. Velcro. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> you know, materials that would never have got invented without the drive to do something extraordinary. There's always a payoff. It might not come in dollars and cents at the end. There are always spin-offs. There are always benefits to industry as a whole whenever you have this level of investment in technology. Oh, yeah, and I mean, how many times have we sent rovers and such to Mars only to have them crash on the planet? And we just had one land recently, so... Hey. Yeah, and when it works, <laughs> amazing. You almost feel that the human race has got a future out there. One of these days, maybe, but not quite <laughs> yet. <laughs> As they point out, the ZPMs pull energy from a vacuum space that they create, whereas this technology is going to pull energy from this very universe. The only hiccup, of course, is that we've got to live in this universe. So Yeah, that, that's a big hiccup. Yeah. We do, at some point in the future, experiment with the technology to produce energy from another reality, but that has its own drawbacks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, a pretty good episode in itself. It, it is. You know, the episodes involving Genie were interesting. Yeah. I did like the uh, almost throwaway line that this outpost was ordered to defend the planet. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder, why did they choose a populated planet? Was this planet anything special? Because you're dealing with high-energy physics that could go wrong, and why do it in a populated area? An excellent question, and one that they don't ever really answer. And, and obviously, you know, from looking at that scene whenever we flew into the planet, the Durandans were not nearly as technologically advanced as the ancients were, because they were, you know, dealing with a whole bunch of stone structures where the ancient structure is metal and survived 10,000 years. Yeah. We've had examples before where particular planets have been chosen because they have a peculiarity. Mm-hmm. In SG-1, Nequadria. Yeah. Obviously, that leaves so much problems with Stargate Universe as well. <laughs> yeah. But either way, it's nice to know that when push came to shove, the ancients decided to 
commit the full power of this weapon to defending the people. Although I suppose they really didn't have much choice. I wonder where the initial testing was, because I'm sure there were plenty of failures before the outpost started here, but where the original testing was, because if there's the consequences like there is later on in this episode, then if it had been Atlantis, I'm surprised Atlantis is still around. Yes. <laughs> I, ima- <laughs> I imagine Atlantis has got a very colourful history of almost. <laughs> that was close moment. Yeah. We get a few funnies. Uh, we were this close, and then it's the old I do, we do, and they do between the three of them. You got a smile. Good chemistry between the characters. Good writing as well. Yeah, definitely. There's some good writing in this episode. Uh, then we have the old science montage where many things are done in a short space of time. Rodney arguing with Zelenka as always. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. In the access cor- corridor. Pull it out when I say so. And then Zelenka <laughs> just pulls it out straight away and Rodney just looks. This an- just annoying face on Rodney at that point as he marches off to go berate Zelenka once again. <laughs> The dynamic between those two especially, because you've got to think they're both probably about the same level on IQ. There's sometimes where you think that actually Zelenka is higher than Rodney because Zelenka has common sense where Rodney just doesn't. The antagonism between both of them is just fantastic. Yeah, you think Zelenka's the man to give the grant to when you want to finish product after two years of research. Mm-hmm. Rodney's the bloke you give the grant to where you hope you'll get something after five years. <laughs> As long as he has a team that's competent. Link yeah. could probably do it on his own. McKay, he would need a team that's competent. Yeah. Great to see David Nichol, though, when he pops up on Arrow every now and again. Such a different character. Plays a, a Russian mob boss. Yeah. I could see that with a little tweaking, yeah. He's wonderful. Whether whether he's being incredibly charming or incredibly violent, he's, he's not Zelenka, but he's got a great character. That's good. Right then, back on Balkan, uh, Taylor and Ronan uh, talking to uh, a guy named Solon, the Zatidan. Yeah, first he's telling this wildly outrageous story, and Ronan just straight up says, no, it wasn't. You <laughs> figure for a moment you're going to get a gun pulled, but then, no, hey, best bud. Yeah, you think, okay, <laughs> of all the people you... I don't know what the population of Zatida was, but what are the odds that it's somebody you knew? Mm-hmm. And knew reasonably well. Yeah, same regiment, weren't they? Yeah, same regiment, yeah. He actually reveals that at least 300 civilians and some army units got off the planet before the Wraith took control of the Stargate. That is incredibly good news for Ronan. His people are alive and well, although scattered across the galaxy. Yeah, I think he said there was a few here and a few on other planets as well, but a total of 300. A nice round number. Yeah, you can say it's not a huge amount, but part of your tradition and your culture is going to remain, so there is hope long term. Yes. That's one thing about the uh, Atlantis legacy novels, that either gets repopulated. I haven't read those yet. The people start coming back and rebuilding. Got a lot of rebuilding from what our tall <laughs> Satida yes. looked like. On the upside, though, there is a market for all that very high quality steel and uh, materials that the Wraith demolished. Mm-hmm need probably a couple thousand bulldozers to start clearing off a path, though. Uh, well, when you've got people, <laughs> and winter's coming, and so... Winter is always coming. Yeah. Right, we make a quick jump back to the outpost, and it is a quick jump, I think it, the scene's only last about 30 it's seconds. Very quick, yeah. They're getting ready for a, a trial of the system. Back to Balkan, we're in an inn. This is where we learn that a guy named Kel also survived. Yeah, and you can immediately see the demeanor on Ronan change from happy that my people are alive or alive still, and now, oh, there's Kel. Well, yeah, he, he was uh, knocking back the bruise. He was having a great time. Happy, big smile on his face. Just the mention, his face freezes, you know, and you think, hey, oh, what's going on here? Finds that this guy settled on a planet called Belsa. He's got his own private army. And he's referred to as Ronan's Taskmaster. And you can't tell if it's a, a good thing or a bad thing that he's around still. The other dude tries to explain it as the best thing possible, but you have that doubt. Yeah, you definitely get the feeling that this guy is is a force to be reckoned with within this locale. Or this mm-hmm. small network of communities who travel via the gate. He's somebody important. He's, he's, if he's got people following him, he's got resources... Either way, make a note of the name, it's important. Mm-hmm. 
Back on the outpost, they're getting minor power fluctuations as they power up the machine. McKay, oh, this is fine, nothing to worry about. This is McKay, whenever he says that, get worried. <laughs> Always. <laughs> he sends one of his guys, Collins, to make some manual adjustments into the access corridor. He's awfully close to the... The only viewport? Yeah, awfully close. <laughs> I mean, you almost he... think there should be a sign, do not open whilst in operation. Yeah, well, it, it's really odd that later on a top-down view of the containment area and that one access shaft leading straight to the control room is like, why did they make it that way? You know, you thought they would have maybe different accesses, different entrances, but just one access. Yeah, no doubt there was a good reason for it. We'll never know, because unfortunately, or they all died. Perhaps if they hadn't had that stupid ladder, they could have got out quicker as well. Maybe. <laughs> all it takes is one person's hand to slip, and he falls, and the, everybody behind him falls as well. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, the power spikes, and McKay is having trouble controlling the reaction. He, John is getting more and more frantic, certainly not shutting down. Bright flash of light. Very bright, yep, and then quiet. Power drops, reaction stop. McKay... Hasn't dawned on him yet, Bat Collins. He thinks, oh, everything's fine, we've sorted it out. And then you see it in his face. Oops. Yeah. Uh, Collins? Unfortunately, we get a long shot as the door opens and we see Collins' fried wrist and hand. Uh, I hope he's dead. I certainly... <laughs> I think he probably got blasted by very hard ra radiation before the heat began to cook him, but either way, you've got to say that there was no reason that guy should anywhere close to that reactor at that time. Mm, yeah, definitely. The one thing that struck me odd when I'm thinking back on it is if there was that much radiation dumped, it probably would have damaged not just biological materials, but probably electronic materials as well that weren't shielded. So how did the camera right by the door not take any damage? <laughs> yeah, you, you can understand if ancient tech survived it because it was built to. Human tech, not so much. But just perfectly sitting right there on the tripod, still recording. Yeah. Yeah, that's a question for the ages. We return to Atlantis, into the briefing room. We're getting some... Autopsy reports. Basically, uh, radiation burns, 90% burns covering his body. Unidentified radiation. The containment field didn't fail, but it it kind of, kind of warped along with the reaction. Again, right into that one corridor. Which think that would be the weak point, so that's where it followed. Yeah. And if there was no access corridor to that, then maybe it would have stayed in containment? Pothole, maybe? Maybe, yeah. It's like, if, you, if you're trying to picture it, if you've seen Spider-Man 2, when, you know, he's, he's creating that fusion, and he's got the huge ball of energy, and then spikes start shooting out, little, you know, flyers. And it's like that. Mm-hmm. If it had been a pure, you know, secure dome, then the reaction might have continued until it actually vaporized the entire, entire building. And more. And more, yeah. <laughs> Hang around, folks, that may still happen. Coldwell raises the question that maybe it was human error on Collins's part. He was messing around with some of the calibrations. Yeah, but if you remember, he didn't actually... He, he reached in there and boom, it happened. So he hadn't actually had time to adjust anything. So if they had looked back at the recording, that obviously still should have been there since the camera was fine, that he actually didn't get to make any adjustments yet. The reaction was ongoing before even Collins even got a chance to do anything anyway. It was just a question of when. Mm-hmm. McKay defends his man. Unfortunately, we, we get the clash. It's, no, not unfortunate, because it's a good clash, and it's exactly what would happen between military, civilian, and the research scientists themselves. Mm -hmm. Military, obviously, we want the results of this. We want this to continue. We know people die when you're reaching for a goal, and that is acceptable. McKay, he wants to try again. He knows that people die when you're pushing the envelope. Yep. Unfortunately, you always get the idea with McKay, his ego is ruling his, his soul. You know, he'll figure out what the problem was, he'll solve it, and whoever's dead in the process, unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. We're, he's not so happy about this. He's out and out civilian. This is way too dangerous. Yeah. But of course, we know what's going to happen. Yeah, we have a little foresight going on. Yep. Jump back to Balkan. Again, another quick segment. Ronan drunk, Ronan passed out. Back to Atlantis. The argument is still ongoing. The Manhattan Project gets brought up. Dallager, yep. I remember seeing some video of that. I assume it's original. It looked original. 
I haven't seen that, but I, I can believe you. I love how McKay tries to convince John with it is the hot dog big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was inspired. And that's got John's ears to perk up. It's the hot dog big. Yeah. Oh. Bigger than the wheel, bigger than the light bulb, even bigger than the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> he wins over John by saying, you know, trust me. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. This time, you, you know what I'm capable of. You know... I'm not perfect, but in this, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I know the risk we're taking. We know the benefits, the potential benefits. As he said, this Harry Cade, how do you pronounce his surname? Degline? Dagger? Dagler. I'm going to admit. I, I think it's Dagger. I think it was. Harry K. Daglian. Daglian? Daglian. Harry K. Daglian. Yes, yeah, so like I say, I remember seeing some footage, and I assume it original because it looked old 8mm. Yeah. You know, these two, like, two halves of a bowling ball. And basically the voiceover says, just a fraction of a touch. It touched the outer casing, a flash of energy, and his body got bathed with enough radiation that he was dead within a month. Oh, I thought we were going to go hit Incredible Hulk style here with gamma radiation. Yeah. <laughs> the guy kept working because that was the way he gave his, his death meaning. And I understand that argument that McKay's giving. If they do nothing now, Collins died for nothing yeah they may pull something from the from the research they pull off the computers but to really do a death justice you've got to carry on the problem with that argument is there's got to come a point where the cost is too great for the benefit yeah one of the unfortunate side aspects of an armed conflict is that oh we can't stop now because all those men that have died have given their lives for nothing uh, okay yeah but how many more men die to justify that. Almost an impossible equation to work out. Yeah. What does it take or where do we stop is always the question, you know, what is too far? And in this episode, we, I think, determine what is too far. Yeah. Yeah, when when the whole bloody place is going to blow up and <laughs> it was weird. That's too far. <laughs> Anyhow, McKay finally convinces John. He, end, he ends up actually visiting him in his room to make the argument. Yeah. Yeah, now we have to convince Dr. Weir to go along with the entire project. Yep, fortunately, Coldwell is uh, McKay's flag bearer. Of course the military would be. Openly admits, we want this energy source, we want this weapon, something that can kill Wraith Hive ships, we need. Something that can give us virtually unlimited power, we need. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to argue against the sacrifice of tens of thousands of people in a research project if... A decade later, you've got clean, unlimited power for a whole planet. Yeah. If Rodney can do as he says and get it stabilized, then, hey, this is unlimited power. It's one of the great disappointments that cutting-edge aerospace research and space manned space research is held back by worry over losing a test pilot or an astronaut. Mm. Especially when you know that breed of person is more than willing to take the sacrifice willing to take a risk if it's not if it's a calculated risk yeah unfortunately the penny pinchers the hr departments the lawyers unless a calculated risk is 100 <laughs> percent, we're going to be okay they're not keen on it unfortunately politicians see any death as something they do not want to see on any project they back as well and things get slowed down fortunately research is, seems to be going quite well at the moment Thanks to third parties, not necessarily government funding. Yeah, places like SpaceX and Tesla, things of that nature, bringing up the inventions and progresses. You look at it and you think, maybe in 20 years, when they're you know making 50 billion dollars a year on bringing back moon rocks, resources from the moon, because they've invested now, a lot of governments will look back and think, well, we could have done that, couldn't we? Wasn't it, I believe, China that just sent or is working on sending a rover uh, study to the dark side of the moon not a manned trip of course but a a rover trip to the dark side of the moon to explore and map out and things of that nature between the time of recording and release china has indeed landed a probe on the dark side of the moon an impressive achievement it's almost i suppose you could call it faith but there are resources out there Mm-hmm. And the next step of man's journey to the stars, the moon, the asteroid belt. I honestly believe there are resources there. We've just got to get there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hey, we could clean up the asteroid belt by harvesting some of the resources. Anyway, that's where uh, that's a totally different topic. Yes. We uh, almost reluctantly gives the green light, because as Coldwell says, if you say no, I'm going to go back to Earth in three weeks, I'll have talked to the president, and he will be ordering you to give the green light. Yeah, so it's either you do it now, and we just save some time, or you do it whenever they say do it. John is in for it, because as he says, He's got to protect Rodney from himself. Mm-hmm. John says, I trust him this time, let's do it. We jump to the outpost, John and Rodney, lots of friendly uh, banter going on between them, although uh, Rodney is pushing it a little bit too far. John is getting a little bit annoyed with him. I did like the, uh, oh, it's, it's incon- inconceivable that anything could go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> definitely sounding a bit like the mad scientist. Yeah. There's so many other things he could have said, but John is only getting his back up a bit. The two of them together, I think they uh, they work well together, but they need they need a third. They need Taylor. They need Ronan, somebody just to bounce off of. Yeah. Back of Atlantis, Zelenka and Weir. Zelenka's been poring over the ancient database reports and everything they pulled from the outpost. Uh, he's pretty sure he's spotted a flaw. What they're trying to do simply cannot be done with the as they understand physics at this point. Yeah. They are literally breaking the laws of physics in this space-time, and the consequence for that, they cannot predict. You cannot predict something, you cannot prevent it. Yeah, and as you know, as I said, you know, the exotic particles, when they interact with the other exotic particles, it automatically makes the unpredictable unpredictable. Yep. Uh, and, of course, McKay trying to say that Zelenka is trying to upstage him and sabotage him, of of course, we know he's not. He's actually just trying to save his ass because that's Zelenka's job. And they find out, hey, this is how the planet actually was destroyed, which goes back to my earlier question of, well, how can you destroy something on the opposite side of the planet or outside of the firing arc of the weapon? Because if you're on the other side, surely then you would not have been destroyed unless they, I don't know, gravity and, you know, hitting different places, something of that nature. I don't know. You could argue that maybe this civilization was just one huge city. Maybe... You just don't know, do you? <laughs> no. But you would have thought back in the ancient times they could have, if the civilization was as large and as you know, possibly even nearing advanced as our society, it would have been widespread across the entire planet. Because that was a rather large city that you saw, and so it should have definitely been spread out. From experience, we know civilizations, cultures, develop around rivers, outlets, deltas. That's where you're liable to see them. So they're going to be spread out. Yeah. Plenty of farming resources to supply the city and other you know, natural resources out and about, so it would have not just been centered in one city. Again, I suppose you could argue that a lot of the devastation was caused by the Wraith, orbital bombardment. It would have worked more if they'd have left most of the buildings intact and mm-hmm. argued that the hard radiation breached the containment of the facility and just swept across the entire planet. That could have worked, yeah. That would give you the everybody's dead on the planet and maybe the gun itself took care of two or three hive ships in orbit. It'd been yeah. nice to say that, you know, $100,000 to do as a 30-second flashback. You know, this is what happened. Yeah. Them actually defeating the rave, five seconds of celebration, and then the ancients panicking when the containment broke. Yeah, just a little cut back would have... I mean, I, I don't know if it necessarily would have advanced the plot that much, but definitely would have helped answer a few questions. I suppose this is what it's like when... An episode goes out and the writers look on the Gate World forums the day after. <laughs> and all those questions that the writers themselves brought up and said, we can't do that, we can't do that, don't worry about that. Yeah. Like, well, maybe we should have done that because now obviously everybody has their own opinion. Yeah. Quick visit back to Balkan. Kel's here, arranging a meeting. Don't worry about that, we'll be back. On the outpost, they're up to 40% power. With the previous test as catastrophic as it was why don't we just go to like one percent or five percent power (laughs) you know why such a high number you know anytime you're having problems again the first time why did they test that 100 percent power why didn't they try that at one to five percent power you know something that if something does happen it's not going to obliterate the universe as mckay said you know worst case scenario tear hole in the fabric of the universe yeah at the very least give you a lot more time to diffuse the situation before it got to a critical point if it's cumulative. Mm-hmm. Either way, despite what Zelenka tells him that any power setting is too high, they set it at 40%, weapons powered up, target the debris, 
gun fires, uh, there's a surge, it keeps urging, <laughs> the red line is going up and up and up and up. And McKay trying to do everything he can within his power to get it under control, hitting buttons as fast as possible, and it just will not stop. You see the panic growing on his face. Shepard, shut it down, shut it down now, nothing is working. And it comes to a point where Rodney realises that that's it, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, when John basically just verbally slaps him and says, Rodney, you can't, so let's get out of here before we die. And he's like, yeah, we can't, let's go. I like the analogy that John says, you've seen pilots going down in the planes who are convinced right until the time they hit the ground that they can pull the plane out of a dive. Mm-hmm. Become so focused on the immediate threat they don't realise the big picture. And McKay probably would have stayed at that console convinced he could do something. Yep, he would have stayed there until he either got radiated like the ancients or other. Yeah. The only upside is I hope that the ancients stayed there because they had to stay there to protect the people of the planet. Mm-hmm. They failed, but it'd be nice to think that's why they died. That's why they didn't say, evacuate, let's go. Yeah, that's, that's the only thing I can think of because obviously we know that they're trying to protect the people from the wraith, so we want to try to protect them. And then once they realize that, hey, we can't actually stop it from happening, we got to try to do everything we can in our power to. Right, back to the village. Ronan has got himself a meeting via Taylor with Kel. Uh, they walk into a building. Well, Kel walks into uh, a building. Taylor is there. Taylor doesn't know what Ronan is planning at this point. Does anybody know what Ronan is planning at any time? I've got to assume that Solon has a rough idea. Maybe Solon doesn't even know exactly what happened in those last hours. Maybe, you know... Well, Solon, I think, you know, he knows, he knows what happened there, but obviously not with what happened to Ronan. And that's what the crazy part. My guess is, unless you actually saw Cal ordering his troops into suicide missions to protect him as he drove away into the distance, you'd argue that all your friends died because they were being attacked by the Wraith. Mm-hmm. And anybody that got away were just lucky. Ronan being right there, the right place at the right time, saw his taskmaster, someone he obviously respected, trusted with his life. He saw him thrown away to Tedans, not to defeat the Wraith, not to protect civilians, to protect himself. Yeah, and that definitely does not fit with Ronan's entire character story, because he always, even whenever he was a runner, went out of his way to attempt to avoid settled areas so that they would not get it affected by the Wraith. Yeah. So, Kel meets Taylor. He wants to meet everybody that he may have to be dealing with. That's when Ronan walks around the staircase. Hello. (laughs) Pulls his gun out, shoots him in the chest. Yeah, I think that's where everybody just was like, wait, what? The guards raise their weapons. Ronan just looks at them. He says, you know who he was. You know what he did. If you think he needs vengeance, here I am. So it does indicate that Kel was not a good guy, and I don't think he's a particularly great guy right now. He probably exploits a lot of the people that he works with. The guards that work for him probably see this as all they can do. Mm-hmm. My guess is he just wasn't a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely definitely begs the question of, you know, if his soldiers didn't obviously challenge what Ronan did, then yeah, he definitely was not one to want to be followed anymore, or definitely one that had alienated even his own people. Obviously, there's no support structure for Kel's command or his operation. There's no second in command who's gonna, you know, avenge the death of Kel. Or if there is, obviously, either they're A, not here, or B, didn't really care for Kel in the first place, anyways. Just hadn't come up with the time to mutiny. So, once again, uh, Taylor's totally pissed with him. <laughs> yep. To be fair, once he explains this, she understands, and I totally believe that. Yeah, and a lot of it is that Ronan just hasn't been around that long for people to truly understand him and understand his way of thinking and, and his background. So, you know, what he does very well fits with who he is and his backstory. We haven't learned much of it yet. We will we'll learn more, when, of course, when we go to Satita later on, but... Yeah, we just don't know him very well. He's only been with the team a handful of episodes. We know him as a guy who will throw himself into the line of fire to protect a civilian, protect a woman, protect a child, protect anybody he deems worthy. 
while at the same time is being totally ruthless when required. Mm-hmm. And when he explains exactly what Kel did, Taylor understands she's she might even do the same thing. Somebody who had betrayed treason even to her people, who had, you know, someone who maybe that sent her people to the wraith, she would kill without mercy. Although, yeah. no, kill with mercy. She wouldn't torture them, just put them down. The rest of it, the Atlantis personnel might not understand this because this is not part of their background. Yeah, and it's the entire, well, we are civilized people where even, I'd say, most of the people on Atlantis still look at the Athosians and people from this galaxy as being almost barbaric. Yeah. Elizabeth would certainly be going, oh, take him under arrest and we'll set up a court and we'll convict him of war crimes. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, murderer. Right, back to the outpost. The gun is continuously firing now, trying to bleed off energy that's going into its capacitors. It's a losing battle. You don't really know if it's got any designated targets at this point or it's just shooting blindly. Either way, you've got to think that maybe a beam weapon or instead of a pulse weapon would have been would have been handy. Yeah, but look back at the beam weapons from Star Trek versus the pulse weapons from the Defiant on Star Trek. Pulse weapons just seem to do more damage. Far too much power flooding into the system, the containment isn't going to hold, they're going to have to take some evasive manoeuvres in the jumper because their weapon will target them eventually. And you have to wonder why it would necessarily target them. I mean, a, if there had been a friend or foe identification, it would have seen that as an Atlantean shuttle, so why would they have targeted it? And B, how could they necessarily tell that it's actually something flying and not just debris in the air? I think at this point... You're right, there would be some sort of friend or foe, but maybe the the Wraith were able to spoof that at that time, that particular technology. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they thought that it's just not worth it, hit anything that's moving in the atmosphere. The native population haven't got anything in the air at this point. Maybe some of the circuitry is, I mean, it's with age or burnt out. The ancients are good, maybe they're not that good. Yeah. Either way, it's a good set piece as the uh, jumper flies low, then just goes for the atmosphere and into the gate. Unfortunately, as they point out, when they get to the gate, they're going to have to fly in a straight line for a certain length of time. Yeah, but why couldn't they just cloak the jumper? Because I, I don't remember if... Even when they first landed here or came down to the planet, they didn't cloak it before they figured out you know something had happened. Why didn't they cloak when they took off from the planet, therefore the ship never being able to be back in the first place? Maybe the ancient tech can see through its own cloak. Maybe. Either way, to keep it exciting, they're running for their lives. The weapons firing through, coming pretty close, considering we're talking, you know, a few thousand miles. Unfortunately, it's getting closer, they activate the Stargate, they get on course, and then, out of nowhere, the Daedalus appears. Yeah, and surprisingly, the shields of the Daedalus are able to withstand the power of that weapon, because if it if it could destroy a hive ship, and we know hive ships aren't shielded, but they have thick armor and, and are quite redundant, how the shields of the Daedalus could have taken that much power without being boosted by a ZPM. Impressive. I suspect that they, they could suffer one or two shots, but that was it. They couldn't stick around either. Yeah, you see them take multiple shots from it, because you, you see the, the flare around the Daedalus itself, and you figure then the Daedalus itself would have been targeted by the weapons platform also. Yeah, but Asgard shields developed thousands of years after this weapon. The weapon may have virtually an unlimited power source, but it's still a weapon of its age. True. But it was developed after the ancients left the Milky Way, and that's when the knowledge and technology of the Asgards and the ancients would have diverged. Yeah. At this point, McKay... He's already told John this is going to be a big, big explosion. They've got to get out of here. Told the Daedalus, as soon as we're through the gate, you jump away. Don't hang around. Yeah, don't just go to full speed. Go to maximum speed. <laughs> yeah. And then the planet blows up and three quarters of the solar system goes with it. Which that gets corrected in a moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not three quarters. Yeah. Oh, dear me. A nice CGI effect. Overall, a nice piece of CGI throughout this episode. We jump back to Atlantis, Ronan and Taylor come through the Stargate, and this is a brilliant scene because in the background you can hear Weir ranting and raving at a little McKay. Pipes up every now and again. You hear three quarters, and no, five, six. (laughs) (laughs) I think Weir is probably at about max volume at that point, and Rodney is just 
trying to shirk away as quickly as he can, but he can't. Yeah, you, you've got to assume the office is reasonably soundproofed. Obviously not complete, because it doesn't matter how loud you sound, if it's, got, if it's soundproofed complete, it's soundproofed. But the very fact that you don't have to listen too hard to understand what the hell's going on. Ronan Taylor. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And like, is there anything that can happen? Nope. Just a Tuesday. A normal Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Just the usual day at the office. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant way to uh, wrap the episode up. Although the final scene is McKay visiting John again. He's been making his rounds. Apologizing. Yeah. He's left John till last mainly because he he committed something when he got John to back him. Trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. It would have been very easy for John to say, that's it, I'm, I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. But he's honest, you know. It'll take a while, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that what we had before we'll have again. It's going to take a lot of trust, it's going to take a lot of faith, and McKay's got to do some work on this himself as well. Yeah. He needs to just pull back his inner, inner child a little, you know, restrain himself a little bit, accept the fact that he doesn't know everything and people around him can fill in some of the gaps and be prepared to listen. Yeah. So when you do go out on the ledge with the support of people, you get it right. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good development arc for Rodney as he realizes that, yeah, he can't do everything even though he really wants to do everything by himself. This episode underlines the fact that Rodney is convinced that he knows better than the ancients. Yes, he had a point that, with hindsight, he can see things that maybe the ancients at the time didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, fair enough, yeah. But they had an underlying knowledge of, you know, the structure of physics that Rodney hasn't even come close to grasping. Oh, God, yes. He never will in his lifetime. But he still believes that whatever they did, he can figure out. Even mm-hmm. if they don't leave an instruction manual, which they very rarely did. Yeah, they luckily left a few there at Atlantis, but not quite enough. Either way, though, a good episode for McKay, a good episode for Shepard. The two of them worked well, as they always do together. Ronan and Taylor, good B story. Mm-hmm. Helped to build Ronan's character up a lot more. They spent a lot more time working with Ronan's backstory than they ever did with Ford's. Oh, yeah. The Ford was... I liked Ford, but they definitely didn't do much for him at all. No, I think they realized very quickly that the character was a dead end. Mm-hmm. They couldn't take Ford maybe where they wanted him and let him stay within the military because ultimately Shepard is in charge. Whatever he decides, Ford's got to go along with. Oh, yeah. And you could only have go two or three times where he defied orders before it became unrealistic for him to be on the team. Exactly. Carter won so many arguments with, with O'Neill because she gave him reasonable alternatives. Yes. Ford couldn't do that, although... Again, when they did spin him off, it was a nice story. And, without giving too many spoilers, read the legacy books. So he did survive, assuming the explosion of the hive ship? Yes. Ah. An exploding hive ship wasn't going to kill Ford. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't see a body in science fiction, assume they're still alive. True. And even when you see a body, make sure it's not a clone or something. Yeah, because we've seen that too. Yeah, we see a lot of things. <laughs> and even when we've seen a body, we've seen them come back to life. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, what they can do. And it's not mm. only science fiction. When they do it in normal procedurals or something like that, you go, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, one I'm really actually excited to see is how they are going to maybe bring back half, not most of the, because the end of Infinity War definitely left and quite a few people dead. It's going to be interesting to see how he gets out of the... To be honest, I, I can't wait to see what they do with Captain Marvel. Yeah, oh, it's going to be good too. It's going to be all pretty much in the past. It'll be interesting seeing a young Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Extra smooth head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At least the CGI, and that's relatively easy. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, then, Thomas. An excellent choice. Indeed it was. I've liked this episode a lot. and There's a handful of episodes from each series that I linked to. I think I gave you, like, four or five different ones that we could choose from. This one definitely was a good choice. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know... I would have trouble picking out episodes. I know what my favourite SG-1 episode is, I know what my favourite Atlantis episode is, I know what my favourite Universe episode is. If you asked me to pick five, three or five, then I'd be sitting there going, well, that one's a good, isn't it? And that one's good, and it would take me a long time to nail it down. 
yeah, I got to think, it's like, okay, well, which ones do I like? I, I like Solitudes, I like um, Camelot, you know, one and two there, and I almost suggested that, but I was like, I don't know if Mike wants to go through a two-part episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing those, and those take a long time. <laughs> they do. Okay then, folks, that was Stargate Atlantis Trinity, an excellent episode for everybody involved. Rodney got to blow up a solar system, Sam got up to blow up a star, not sure which of them had the better deal. How much of the solar system would have been destroyed when Sam blew up a star is the question, though? Uh, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think Sam's still winning in this race. I mean, even the outer planets, without that central gravity well, would just float away anyway, so. Mm-hmm. And she did it deliberately. So that's more impressive than accidentally blowing up a solar system. True. Certainly you get more credit for it anyway. You don't get medals for accidentally blowing up a solar system. Oh, yeah. Nothing for second place. <laughs> Okay then, folks, that was Trinity. Our next show is... I absolutely have no idea, because I'm in the process <laughs> of recording a, a lot of stuff at the moment. But if you want to be like Thomas and join me for an episode, I would love to have you on. If you want to get in touch with, with me, then uh, stargatearchives.com is the current website. Stargatearchives at gmail.com is my email address. We are on Facebook, Twitter, at the Gatecast, Tumblr, and for now, Google+. Pay a visit, uh, have a look at what I post over there. Post them yourself, reply some. I don't, don't get a huge amount of interaction on the main social media, except for Twitter, which is still going strong. Over 4,000 followers now. I have no idea how we got that many. <laughs> <laughs> how many of them are bots? Well, funnily enough, when Twitter did its big culling about two months ago, we didn't really lose many. That's good. But then again, we don't really post anything political. Ah, true, true. If you stay away from some key phrases or... You don't like any key tweets, and you kind of stay off the radar a bit. Yeah. Okay, Thomas, you want to give people your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's C-O-N-F-I-N-F-A-N-T-R-Y. I'm on there once in a while, post every once in a blue moon. About the same on Facebook. I don't get on there very often these days. I, I just don't do much socializing, it seems, these, <laughs> these points. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, most social media now, you, you're going to see half the stuff is politics, and you think, ah, well, give me a rest, please. Yeah. Do enough of that just in normal everyday conversation. Thank you once again, and it's been fantastic having you on the show. It's always been a pleasure to be here, and I always have fun. Excellent. Take care. Tune in next time, whenever that will be. For now, I've been Mike. And Thomas. Take care. Bye bye. All right.